No, I was just saying, like, I was going to check, like, this morning bef- just to make sure that I had all the updates to the stories and looking at the stuff on Sri Lanka. And on the one hand, I'm like, well, I guess I'm glad there wasn't more, like, violence because that would be bad. But on the other hand, I kind of, like, was hoping they would have overthrown the president right now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm surprised that they're still in office. Like, like this is not a criticism of the Sri Lankan protest movement at all. It's more just a reflection of like watching something like this from far away through internet news. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, we'll talk about it in a minute. They've done some pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, already. and I'm not seeing a lot yeah. of like uh, coverage about the actual working people's element to this. All of the news coverage that I'm seeing is like. Uh, Sri Lankan prime minister says country has one day of oil left. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, there's like vague references to economic crisis, COVID, supply chains, uh, vital things, war in Ukraine. Yeah, but it's the same laundry list of excuses that they use for literally every single news item. Like I was at work and the prices were going up and they were like supply chain, Ukraine, like they they literally (laughs) don't, it doesn't matter what the problem is. Yeah, Yeah, no, they've just got like this toolkit of words that they just they're like, oh, does that did that one not convince you to shut up and pay the higher price? Yeah. Try this it, one. It, it has a lot of <laughs> yeah. uh, reflections of of post nine eleven style rationale. Oh, certainly, that's the thing that I've seen, and also just like the um, weird kind of parallels with the Iraq War of just like the manufacturing of consent necessarily on like the liberal side because like. It, what's what I thought because I was listening to like the socialist program, and uh, I think uh, it was Brian Becker who was saying it's like weird that the fucking conservatives are closer to the anti-war position on Ukraine than yeah. the liberals who are fucking but beating that's all, the drum. That's always what Just, they do when they want to get all the liberals to support the war. Because if the conservatives like suddenly decide that they're cool with it, their base will just follow them. But like liberal democratic voters slash populists take a little bit more coaxing. So you make it seem like the Republicans don't want to fight, you know, big bad Putin or, you know, Saddam Hussein or whatever, Uh, or, you know, in post nine 11 era, they kind of use the libertarians more for this. Now it's more like the mainstream GOP, but they, they just do it for a minute. And then everyone's like, when the when the conservatives turn around and support war, they're like, I thought you were against this. And the conservatives are like, surprise, we always support war. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that's and that's, definitely- the, that's the thing. And that's like one of the things that I've appreciated with like some of the better analysis. Like, I don't know. I think the party's analysis on this is pretty good. And I also think that people like Ben Norton have been doing a good job of tra- yes. on looking at this where it's like, it, yes, there are a few members of the GOP who are against sending enormous amounts of money for war in Ukraine because they think we should be spending that money either or both on war here against like immigrants, but also for the war with China. Like there's their only disagreement is on the target. It's not, it's not, there's no actual anti-war sentiment in either party. And it's not like they're not getting that, those funds for war at home either. Like we keep saying, Oh, we can't afford such and such, you know, state run programs because we need to give $40 billion to Ukraine. And then Joe Biden comes out on Twitter earlier this week or late last week and says like, I'm looking to expand police budgets across America. And it's like, 
Well, he yeah, he literally told this was the second time in in two years that he's told cities that have leftover quote unquote leftover mm-hmm. COVID relief funds to spend yeah. them on cops, which is just like you know, but. Like also to what you were saying before, though, Lena, I saw there was a thing from Canada's parliament the other day where like, is it Christia Friedland Christia or Friedland, Cynthia Friedland? Yeah. I, I always forget. Christia, I always get her first name wrong. The vice premier of Canada and granddaughter of uh, like open fascist collaborator um, was ca- calling anybody who was like complaining about inflation, like doing the work of Putin. Like they're just using that as a bludgeon for any against any criticism now. Yeah, it's but instead insane. of like having the fun Cold War, you know, ability to ask like, "Are you a communist? Are you a dirty?" Com-? Now it's just like, "Uh, you support the Russian Federation?" <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like clearly that's not true, but like, sure, go with yeah. it, I guess. <laughs> you would have been right to ask if I'm a commie, well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, they're doing whatever they can to stop us. I mean, they're eating Dan's mail at this point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, to the federal agents listening to this, please stop stealing my mail. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, I just want the stickers to make it. If anybody's stickers are getting eaten, please yeah, let and me if you, know. If you respond to threats, uh, uh, we have a headache gun. <laughs> we are going to give you such a nasty migraine. everybody to work stoppage your uh favorite podcast that openly criticizes the u.s government that one's too broad you might actually have podcasts you like better than us but thank you so much for listening to the show in any case uh, we are entirely listener supported so all of your help means so much to us if you don't support us on patreon we encourage you to do that if you can if you aren't in the discord though what are you doing? That's such an easy, that's a gimme. You got to get in the discord. Uh, if you're a patron and you haven't got your stickers yet, please just send us your information on Patreon and, uh, government agents willing we will get stickers to you and if you want to help the show uh (laughs) even more you can leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you think it will help manually type it in letter by letter with your roku remote if you have to uh (laughs) we're going to start off the show today by following up with some indiana grad student workers who have actually suspended their strike but for some pretty interesting reasons i was a little bit perplexed when i started reading this one Actually, this is such a un- an interesting and unique tactic that really represents like the change in the way that things are happening on the ground there. Because uh, what happened was, is there uh, the faculty? Is there a faculty union? I I know that uh, the faculty themselves came out in support, but I don't remember just seeing if there is an actual faculty union. Dan, did you see that? I- I did not see that. I don't Okay. Know. Well, anyway, the faculty yeah, anyway, the faculty came out with a letter to the union saying, "Hey, we support your struggle and uh we think that how about I know this is the middle of the summer, this is when you're striking, but what if instead we did a big strike right as all of the students were arriving in the fall and we did it together." Uh and the union was like, Okay, you know what? That actually makes sense. And these these are um, UE 
uh, these, I mean, these Indiana grad students workers are um, organized along with the United Electrical Workers, which if you listen to our uh, rank and file episode, know uh, that the UE is pretty cool. And the next one that we come out with uh, next week is going to give a little bit more history on that and how fucking cool the UE actually is. Maybe encouraging some people to start their unions mm-hmm. in the UE because... Uh, uh, I don't know. Just just yeah. a thought. But well, anyway. Uh, what I found really interesting about this story is that when the uh, faculty and the graduate students got together to make this decision, they actually held a special meeting of the, quote, like entire faculty. Uh, and this was the first one that had been held in 17 years. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was pretty wild to see because I think one of the things that the workers are recognizing with this strike is just that. There are victories in the process of unionizing beyond just that official letter you get from, you know, the university recognizing that you have a union, like winning the support of the faculty and the overwhelming support of the faculty. They had like their their vote on to support the union was something like it was I think the numbers was like six hundred ninety three to like 15 or something. It was it was that order of a of a a landslide. And so like that, I think they've recognized is a huge win. And I and they also made some good points because they put out a statement on Twitter and I'm sure a bunch of other places, but that's where I saw it really explaining why they're going to pause the strike, which is, of course, you know, when we think about a strike, the idea of going on pause seems kind of strange but i think in the unique case of grad students it it makes a lot of sense because like they said quote first we want to see the effects of the strike and of the special meeting of bloomington faculty on the administration and the board of trustees that will take time to play out over the summer and two if we are going to continue the strike we want to do that under conditions we choose and under conditions in which we are strong we are strongest when we are teaching hundreds of classes during the fall and spring semesters end quote and i think that's a really good under uh, like a, a good recognition of like how these workers leverage changes when the cla- when like it's a regular semester or if it's the summer semester when the vast majority of undergrads are not on campus um, so like, I think this is a good, I think from a tactical perspective, this is a smart move because like, even with like fewer students generally being on campus, being on strike till takes a lot of resources. It takes a lot of energy. And, and if it's during a period where there's not, not going to be just a lot of folks on campus to support the strike, there's not probably going to be much media attention if it carries over during the summer. And as they said, now that they've secured the support of the faculty, they have this period during the summer where they can continue to bring pressure in other ways, like beyond just the picket line. Uh, so I, th- I think this is an intelligent you know, use of mm-hmm. tactics. Like they said that they're going to take the summer semester as an opportunity to go through and actually set up their UE local, elect officers and a new bargaining committee. And, and so like, I, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's obviously a very strange situation. It's not one we're used to seeing, especially part because of the, the labor environment of them being public employees and Indiana not legally being required to recognize their union. And so recognizing that like it's by gathering allies like the faculty and using their power intelligently, that's going to ultimately win them that recognition. I thought this was really strange because we usually are, are, you know, Hey, why did you stop the strike? And this is a surprisingly good tactic. You know, it was just 
surprised that we would end up being like, this seems cool. It's an extension of striking while the iron's hot. You know, if your teacher's striking mm-hmm. during the fall when the students are first coming in is the, when it's the most powerful. If you're logistics workers, maybe you strike, you know, near the holidays when your, your employer is anticipating right. extremely heavy, you know, traffic of goods. Uh, if you're a longshoreman, maybe you strike when you know the company is anticipating some really big shipments coming in. You know, it, it's just simple stuff like that. So really glad to see them uh, using that kind of stuff. And they announced their plans to set it up over the summer and elect uh, officers and a new bargaining committee. And uh, at the end of their announcement, they said, our goals of union recognition, a living wage, and ending the fees are ambitious. We knew we wouldn't win them all at once, but we will never go back to the years in which graduate employees can just be ignored. We are here and we have our union. We are an immovable force. We really are unstoppable. (laughs) just really cool Hell to call yeah. yourselves an immovable force. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that I just think was really great about the strike was they kept having every week they had another mm-hmm. authorization vote just to check, to basically to poll the union, to be like, is everyone still on board with staying on strike? And every week it was like 98%, 98%, yep. 98%. So, I mean, the the level of unity and solidarity that was shown by these workers during this period of the strike and this like flexibility of tactics, I think is really smart and really encouraging for their prospects. So it's going to be really, I'm really looking forward to, to following up on this in the fall and seeing what future victories they're going to be. Absolutely. Able to yeah. Well, and continuing with education uh, news, we are going to follow up again with the Brookline educators who had voted to strike because, you know, basically negotiations were not working out very well. I mean, uh, last week we talked about this, uh, the teachers in Boston who are trying to negotiate a new contract with the school administrators of uh, Cambridge and Brookline, and uh, they just were not really getting anywhere. Then uh, they voted to strike, and uh, they recently, I I think it's today, uh, Tuesday the 17th of May, uh, they came to a tentative agreement. Yeah. So this was kind of a whirlwind over the weekend because when we talked about this last week, one of the things that we pointed out was the difficulty faced by these educators in Massachusetts of, in, this is the funny thing, despite Massachusetts' reputation as being like the most liberal state, except maybe California or whatever. And yet public workers in that state have no official right to strike. Uh, so this technically was an illegal move and they could have been replaced. But, and so we weren't sure when we talked last week, we're like, well, they may have to, may have to do some like alternative tactics or something, but no, they just went straight to it. They just said, no, look, you guys, we've been, you've been dragging this out for three years since the pandemic started. We've been trying to get a new deal and you just keep dragging it out. We're, we're done with this. And so on Monday, Nine schools with over 8,000 students were closed in Brookline because over 200 educators uh, like hit the picket lines after having rallies on the weekend and then also on Monday. And like just exactly, you know, what we've been talking about, there was there was a quote on, in the Boston Globe from high school guidance counselor Eric Schiff who said, we're tired of our demands falling on deaf ears because that's one of the ways that like this banning of strikes slash enforced labor peace agreements – it takes away the incentive for the management side of things to actually really listen to the workers in good faith. Because like, if you assume that the, the lack of the right to strike means nobody's going to strike, 
what's the worst? They're going to send you a sternly worded yeah. letter? Like, well, and even so... if they do strike, now you have the legal ability to just replace them en masse, which is, you know, a, is terrible and is going to affect the students terribly, but is an avenue that, you know, some school administrators would do. Yeah, but I mean, I think thankfully one of the things that the, the teachers, you know, clearly I took into mm-hmm. calculation with this was that A, teacher strikes, when they do happen have an immediate and very Mm -hmm. strong impact, like at the very minimum of a lot of like frustrated parents. Um, and so like, it's like you could see a strike at say a Kroger, which is incredibly Mm -hmm. important, very important work, but I could see like a corporation being like, eh, we'll see if they have a few days, but like, a, a school and or we similar to what we saw with like the ATU, the, the bus drivers in DC last week, like you see that impact right. immediately and people start getting really mad. Well, it's almost right like away. these teachers provide an utterly essential and criminally overlooked service and should already be compensated to a degree where they shouldn't have to do this in the first place. Well, yeah, absolutely. And in addition, I mean, like uh, with the grocery store example, I mean, there are lots of grocery stores. I'm sure that, you know, a lot of the grocery store chains have, you know, s- like money in all of the different grocery stores in the area are not worried so much about one store. I mean, it definitely still makes an impact on them. But the, when it comes to schools and, and students, you can't just immediately re-enroll a student in another school. It, like that process is not is not quick, and so the, it really does shut down the education for entire communities uh, when when teachers are you know forced into using these work stoppages. Yeah, and and so like as you said, Lena, the the impact was apparently felt right away because. Basically, 24 hours after their strike announcement and, and, and after one day of these nine schools being shut down, the Brooklyn, Brookline Educators Union came to a tentative agreement uh, with the district and ended their strike. So, uh, yeah, as of this morning, they have a new tentative agreement, which I, I think is mostly good. Um, I, I have a couple of quibbles with this agreement, but, I mean, they're pretty minor, like... Uh, a, it's six years mm. long, which is not ideal. Although I will say, I feel like these longer contracts are a bit more common with like public um, uh-huh. employees than with private employees. Not that that necessarily makes them better. Just a, an, a you know, just an observation. Um, the other thing is that the raises that are in the contract, there are two raises of six percent and eight percent, which are good numbers, except that. They're each over a three-year period, which means ultimately they're still pretty small. So it's, I mean, this is not exactly it because, you know, compounding percentages and stuff, but it's like a 14% raise over six years. You're at like a little less than two and a half percent a year, which is like barely keeping up with inflation in a good year, much less the 8% we see now. So that's the parts of the deal that I think are maybe less than ideal. However, there's a lot of other stuff in the contract that they were explicitly fighting for that they did win, which is longevity pay for long-term teachers, 
additional prep time. That was a big one that the, the teachers specifically called out as one of the things they've been pushing for for a long time that before the strike, the district was refusing to budge on, which was giving teachers more time just during the day to actually be able to prepare for their class instead of, you know, trying to understaff and use teachers to do things that aren't necessarily their like job instead of hiring additional mm-hmm. staff. Um, and then also the creation of a working group, including members of the union to, uh, ensure diversity and representation within the, uh, workplace, because that was another major issue that they were fighting for was the hiring and retention of educators of color, which has been like for the, the area, a, a, a struggle that the district has not been devoting enough, uh, resources to. So like, while it's yeah it's possible that if they st- stayed out a little longer maybe could they have won slightly better raises maybe but you we as we've said like while it was very brave and i generally am like very encouraged to see these workers not be afraid to go out on an illegal strike where they could have been fired it does make every single day that the strike goes on much yep. riskier for these workers mm-hmm. than, than some other strikes. So, um, the only other thing that I will say, and this is just the same thing that I've said every time we've seen this happen with a school strike is the practice of signing the tentative agreement and saying strikes over, everybody's going back to work. Like, again, you gotta be democratic about this. You gotta let people vote on the tentative agreement. I'm, I, I'm, I'm betting this is going to pass like really high. Cause it seems like this does meet most of their demands, which is great. I'm glad they went on the strike. It seems like the strike was successful. But you got to have, like, if we're going to be good democratic unions that believe in workplace democracy, you got to give the workers a chance to make that call before you declare, like, plus, isn't it easier to get everybody together to vote on it if you're not working that day? Just a thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So. Overall, I think this is a is is a, a big win that it, it shows the solidarity and the mm-hmm. unity within the union that they were able to organize this strike outside of a legal framework, which is great to see. And we're going to probably need a lot more of that in coming years. Um, so just, you know, those couple of quibbles. But overall, I think it's great to see workers like these educators who have been, because that's one of the other things that part of the reason we cover these teacher strikes is not just because there's a lot of teacher strikes, but also because like teachers get treated like absolute shit Mm -hmm. in this country, especially when you compare it to how important of a job they're doing and how difficult of a job that they're doing. And so I, it's always really good to see like, workers actually stand up and say, we're not going to take this shit anymore and, and force these good changes. Well, uh, yeah, Speaking absolutely. of workers who are restricted and prohibited from striking, uh, we're going to follow up again with some workers <laughs> yeah. who work for BNSF, which is one of the largest uh, rail rail and freight, the railway industry uh, companies in the United States. And we've mentioned, I think we've, this is the third or maybe even the fourth time we followed up with them. Uh, this is the company that had the incredibly harsh attendance policy that only gave their employees one guaranteed day off per month. Uh, not per week, per month. And so lacking the uh, ability to strike because of the industry that they work in, these workers have instead been quitting the company in droves uh, with resignation spiking to all-time highs. And that level of attrition and worker discontent has actually already forced BNSF to change their attendance policy, which is frankly incredible. This is not a strategy that you see all that often because it really does take a really high level of commitment from the workers to be like, okay, we're just going to start resigning. Yeah. 
I actually was watching the interview with some of the uh, old guard of the of BNSF that uh, had an interview on working people, and they were talking about how these workers themselves actually have quote unquote days off or like time off the clock but this is often when they're hundreds of miles from home because they're on the trains they go somewhere and they end up in a hotel room uh you know eating gas station food and that's considered time off that's insane right i don't know how i don't know how you could actually you know enrich yourself or consider that to be real time off uh it's ridiculous and uh on its face but uh, BNSF, in response to all of these resignations and the, uh, you know, pending agitation from, you know, I guess, labor, I mean, it's not like they're, I think that they're probably just seeing a lot of internal conflict rather than, like, external striking potential, because obviously the judge had blocked their ability to strike, as well as just, like, the incredibly arduous labor law that stops them through a thousand different steps. Actually, I think it's specifically like five or six steps just to get to a strike vote. Um, But anyway, because of that, BNSF has reduced the amount of, you know, or has changed the attendance policy to not give penalties for vacation days and personal days, which for one, I want to point out that in the beginning, they would get negative attendance points for taking earned vacation days yeah mm-hmm. which is insane yeah and then w- showing the company's true insane corporate brain one of the things they've also rolled out to make this system uh less terrible is its own extremely convoluted system where workers can earn back their points uh to prevent being disciplined yeah. by working during what's called a high impact day which is basically saying like look we're going to squeeze incredibly intense labor out of you one way or another and uh look how generous we are we've gamified it now you can pick your poison yeah i mean certainly it is fucking awful this whole situation is is just another illustration of why it's like if we want to be if 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 anybody wants to be taking any sort of an electoral road as far as like and i don't mean democrats i just mean like pushing Mm -hmm. for reforms within the like system to support labor you know we talked about it would be good if the pro act got passed but you also need to do stuff like repeal Taft-Hartley, um, repeal the Railway Labor Act, because like the sorts of laws that we've had in place in this country for some, like in some cases almost a hundred years, like it's good that the pressure from all these workers quitting and from some protests from workers, family members that I, I saw like some, there was um like protests from like spouses of a lot of these workers protesting outside of BNSF. I think they were having mm-hmm. like an earnings call or, or something like that. Um, like it's good that that pressure forced the company to make these changes and make their attendance policy slightly less draconian. But the fact that the only Avenue that those workers had was to quit, is a big problem. Like truly a American individualist bullshit. Yeah, cuz like the union had f- has followed every single step in the stupid bullshit policy laid out by the Railway Labor Act and one judge who is not elected or voted on by anybody just gets to say Ah, this uh, policy that basically runs your workers into the ground is going to make them die probably 10, 15 years before they would have to that's not a big deal. That's not worth striking over. You can't strike. If you strike, you're all fired. Like it's, that's the system that the railway labor act puts into place. 
and that's what forced these workers ultimately into this position where they're just like, I cannot work this job because it will kill me <laughs> because yeah. that's, that's what these kind of attendance policies do. And we need a situation where that's not, those are not the only two options. Right. Another thing that was said in that interview that I had watched was specifically that these people who are like the kinds of workers who end up in construction or, you know, trains and other hard labor are looking at just like taking a minor pay cut for like work at home jobs because of the increase in work at home jobs because they're like, I don't even get to see my family. I basically, I have a family and they sit at home and I never get to be there. Um, And just the prospect of even being able to do that is worthy of, of a, even a significant pay cut to some of these people. Imagine that. Imagine that, you know, having a life is worth something. I mean, my uh, just personal anecdote, I guess my uncle was a long haul trucker for like decades for like 20, 25 or 30 years i think uh and now he drives a pallet truck around a lot that's like six miles from his house and he's never been happier he looks healthier too like i saw him at my wedding i was like damn uncle glenn looks pretty good actually he's always looked like shit (laughs) yeah well and i mean so on the one hand like it's good that this pressure has forced this change but like because this isn't because the workers don't have a, a real legal way to do a, a collective struggle and make no mistake. If, if the union went out and did an illegal strike on their own, the government would absolutely try and use like the uh-huh. fucking army to break that strike. They, they've, they've done that sort of thing in the past with these sorts of things like a railway strike. As we talked about, it probably could be done, but it would require an enormous amount of coordination with a lot of other unions and not just the railway mm-hmm. workers. And yeah. like, so, I think that uh, I just want to make a point on that specifically is because we often kind of rail on like, yo, a strike is only illegal if something bad is going to happen from it. You know, it's like these the teachers in Brookline who went out on strike technically, you know, got what they want without the repercussions of of firing and having the illegal strike being, you know, called to by the government. But in the case of railway workers, like we have seen historically extreme repression and that that is a genuine threat. It's not like they should just go out and wildcat and it's going to be fine because they've got the power of the union. Uh, like, unfortunately, when viewing the material conditions of what's going on on the ground, that is so much more risky than just, you know, being in like a, a bad state with bad worker laws and going out on a wildcat because you're a healthcare worker or something like that. Uh, in this case, it is a lot more of an actual risk. But that also brings me to the point that I just want to quickly make. If you aren't in uh, one of these situations, you should be considering what are the actual repercussions of things like a wildcat strike, because that is what truly determines whether or not there are, you know, there are real, um, you know, parts of the repressive state that are going to come down. Yeah, on I you. mean, people often ask, they're like, oh, you know, isn't it better now because the, the U.S. government doesn't send like fucking Pinkertons and the National Guard after workers like they did in Homestead? Uh, and I'm like, well, yeah, they did that at Homestead because partly because it was back in the day and it was more accepted to do that kind of thing. But also because those were like major steelworks that were building all of the cities of America. <laughs> and if the U.S. government well, like we don't do that with steel anymore, but railroads and transportation transportation or, or maybe like trucking in general, uh, those are industries where the, the government would probably still respond that way. Yeah. And I mean, I would just argue that a lot of that has transitioned into use of the courts 
as yep. the primary form of the repressive state apparatus against unions. Like we we saw that in the PACO strike where they just started, okay, fine. Every day you're on strike, we're finding the union a hundred thousand dollars, which today would be right. probably like a million dollars. And mm-hmm. like they and using court injunctions to make it so that if you have more than five people on a picket line, the police can arrest you. I mean, we just talked last week about the Chevron workers in California who are being constantly harassed on the picket line by the cops. So the repression is there, but it's a different it's it's a little bit of a different form. It's it's using more of like the violence of the carceral right. system than it is so much like National Guardsmen lining up and just shooting into a strike line. Like, Thank you, Joe Biden. Not even President Joe Biden, but fucking Senator Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, while on the one hand, we're glad that this policy is getting changed a little bit, BNSF, even in that same letter, said that, quote, the program is working as intended, end quote. And obviously some of that is legalese to be like, we didn't back down. We're doing this out of the benevolence of our hearts. But some of it is also because they're like, look, you weren't able to strike, which is exactly how we want it. And so uh, I did see that, the you know, because More Perfect Union has mm-hmm. been reporting on this. It's where I've gotten a lot of stuff out of this. And workers have continued to talk to them and say, like, look, yeah, this is a small victory, but we're going to keep fighting until we actually have an attendance policy that allows people to live and have an actual life. And the other thing that I I've seen people point out, and I think is really true is that this sort of thing, this sort of action by BNSF, like, yeah, maybe in the short term, this is going to help them with some more like profits and cutting labor costs by being able to squeeze as much productivity out of people as possible. But like, good luck recruiting people like long-term right. to do this work because like the, the, all the people that are working at this job fucking hate this now. <laughs> and so like the image of this as any, as like a good job to have is being very rapidly destroyed by the mm-hmm. actions of these companies. Absolutely. I saw that in the interview that I looked at too, but, uh, to move to our next store, uh, follow-up, I should say, uh, uh, we have the we're going to go back down to the workers in Mexico at the GM Salau plant where the uh, Cintia union, which replaced the former, uh, you know, uh, Federation of uh, Workers of Mexico, which was the basically the company union. They have actually uh, they've reached the ten- a tentative agreement, which has not quite met their strong demands of something like a 19% wage increase, but is at least over double what GM had originally offered. Yeah. I mean, look, I certainly loved their very baller opener of, yeah, give us a 20% <laughs> raise. Cause, cause that rocks, that's huge energy. Well, and but that's, like, that's how you get two and yes. a half times what the company was willing to give you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing is cause you'll see people be like, well, the company's offering three and a half percent. Well, we should p- counter with five. Be like, no, counter with twenty. Yeah, <laughs> fuck that. Like, and 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 so yeah, the this new tentative agreement is the first one to be signed by any of the new independent unions that have been bubbling up after decades and decades of collusion. It's I mean, it's hard. It's almost hard to say like failure of the CTM because like they were basically performing their function as like an, a wing of the like right wing PRI and, Mm -hmm. and, and basically functioning, as you said, as company unions. But, um, yeah, like this wage increase that they've agreed to of eight and a half percent. And that's just, again, that's an immediate wage increase. That's not over multiple years. 
Like that exceeds the rate of inflation in Mexico and is significantly bigger than any of the other raises that have been recently negotiated by Mexican labor unions at other similar automakers. Like uh, I saw examples at like Nissan and I think maybe Audi and a couple of others that they were all in the range of five and a half to six and a half percent, which I mean, that's not a, that's not a horrible raise, but eight and a half is significantly better, especially because crucially it is higher than inflation. And this is also, it's only a two year contract and there's another salary negotiation period after the first year. So they get to negotiate to try and get another raise in the middle of the contract. I'm doing like the Vince McMahon, like falling out of his chair meme right now. Every time Dan (laughs) reads off like a, a a bigger and bigger ask that they're going for the, the fucking two year contract with renegotiations in the middle. That's how contracts should be done. (laughs) It rocks. Honestly, very much. So what we look to see in actual like strong union organizing and clearly also shows the discontent of these workers with their former situation mm-hmm. and like yo no we have a real union now and you are going to come to the table and you are going to have actual concessions um but even then uh, to remember that you know as as dan likes to point out uh power concedes nothing without a demand <laughs> the idea that they went from you know their original 19 percent uh increase to an eight and a half percent increase is slightly below meeting in the middle it's still amazing but but really you have to have that really lofty goal in order to reach even that you know below halfway meeting point yeah and in addition to like the big wage increase the fact they get to call for wages uh, raises again after the first year they're getting larger bonuses than they used to get at the end of the year. A 14% increase in grocery vouchers for, you know, like workers to help, you know, pay for food, mm-hmm. which rocks. I didn't actually know that was a thing. Um, they've won Christmas Eve as a mandatory paid holiday, which they didn't have before. And some of the other stuff that they won that's a little bit outside of what I think we would normally see from, you know, just your classic wages and benefits mm-hmm. contract is they've also won and this is a big one that I think really shows the differential between this union and the CTM. They now are going to, the company is now going to be required to set up a joint committee between the company and the union to negotiate workers' schedules. So GM will no longer have completely unilateral ability to set worker schedules. They actually have to go through the union for that, which that's, I mean, yeah. I mean that's huge. That that takes away the, one of the company's biggest ways to fuck you around, uh, just in general, like you, that's the first thing that companies do oftentimes if there's like a, a, a troublesome employee is they'll they'll make you start working Saturdays and second or third shift. Yeah, uh, the idea that they're going to be able to actually discuss this with management uh, reminds me of the Burgerville workers who got their uh, their schedules three months in advance, which is slightly yeah. different than than direct negotiation, but it still leaves so much uh, open for them to negotiate their schedules in that same kind of way and really shows how strong this movement is that the workers are demanding shop floor control. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, and that's, 
I mean, this is very much the you love to see it sort of contract. This is like, this is becoming like my like example of like, hey, this is what unions can do when they're actually run by the workers. Because like they also won the ability to develop a new sexual harassment policy, which is something that workers had been fighting for for a long time. And the former UN union, the CTM, had been ignoring for years and a long the development of a long term program to ensure that wages continue to rise above inflation after this contract. So like in, in addition to the wage gains, in addition to being able to renegotiate, there is going to be a joint company union committee specifically dedicated to the fact that, Hey, all future wage increases need to be actual, like cost of basically actual real better than cost of living adjustments. They have to not just be fake raises where we're giving you a 2% raise when inflation is 4% right. and all that yeah. sort of bullshit. Which we even, we're even seeing that here in the United States so much. I mean, we hit it with so many different contracts that we're like, oh yeah, they're getting a, a 6% raise this year and then this, but that's still below inflation, which means that it's still a pay cut. Yeah, um, so they're doing incredible work and uh, Cynthia's general secretary, Alejandra Morales, said she hopes that the new contract demonstrates what actual worker-led unions can accomplish and inspires workers at other plants to fight for independent unions. I suspect uh, that it will do that and it's doing an excellent job of demonstrating that. Uh, and then we have a quote from her that says, before there were deals just between companies and unions, today it's possible for us workers to have real negotiations which i mean that gets right to the point absolutely yeah love to see that sort of that differentiation of an understanding of like with the difference between a fake company union and a union that's actually run by the workers Mm -hmm. and like the the real material difference in outcomes there so yeah great stuff love to see it and i hope that this is just the first of many and that we start seeing more and more and more of this out of out of the workers in mexico because it's it's unambiguously great news which we love to see and so so just i mean i want to give a little disclaimer here this is not another oops all follow-ups episode i promise (laughs) i know that we have been doing so many follow-ups we have one more which we actually uh were um, referring to at the at the cold open of the episode but yeah we're going to be going to the upper the the um the general strikes and general uh, kind of uprising that has been happening in uh, in Sri Lanka. Yeah. So, like, yeah, as, as we were alluding to at the top, we've we've covered the what's been going on in Sri Lanka a few times over the last couple of months, where the general economic crisis had led to has led to you know shortages of, of vital goods, including food and fuel, has led to the government slashing state services with including like healthcare workers going on strike because they weren't paid for months, and led to multiple crippling general strikes where like that had a complete unity across the like various trade union sectors with the political opposition just shutting down basically the whole country multiple times to demand the resignation of the government because of their like policies of economic austerity and mismanagement that have really exacerbated the current crisis. And these really heated up uh, last week and to the point where there was kind of a brief period where Sri Lanka entered the cool zone, if anybody remembers that term from a couple <laughs> of years ago, yeah. but um, where basically they kept demanding that the government resigned the government kept refusing to do that and then so some pro-government mobs like attacked some of the protesters and that basically just set everything off like the protesters who had been shutting stuff down and demanding the government resign uh, when finally faced with essentially para-state repression 
responded by torching the homes of the prime minister and a whole bunch of other major government officials. There was a lot of very cool videos of people throwing cars into a river <laughs> and yeah. like li- lighting Lamborghinis on fire. That was my favorite. I so love cool. seeing a, a luxury car burning. That's one of my <laughs> that's one of my favorite things. And I just want to again point out that this is this austerity was uh was mandated by the IMF which is basically controlled by the United States. I mean, not to not to say that the uh, government isn't responsible because they very much so are, and they are entrenching themselves in this position. But uh, this is also not simply an isolation or simply isolated to just the conditions in Sri Lanka, but are also exacerbated by exploitation from the West. Yeah, we'll be seeing a lot more of this in the next few years as the IMF starts to call in a bunch of debts that are coming up due. I think there's a... a a couple Latin American countries and at least two Middle Eastern countries, if I'm not mistaken. Well, and right now with the United States trying to tighten the grip around the South China Sea, anyone, even in the general Pacific region, Mm -hmm. is going to see an additional amount of scrutiny from the IMF. But like... Uh, so yeah, this led, like, there was widespread, you know, (laughs) destruction of property. Uh, several people died, including there was a government official who shot two unarmed protesters in a crowd before being surrounded and basically being forced to take his own life, which like, well, man, if you hadn't shot at the protesters, I don't think that would have happened that you made a bad decision there. Um, and the, the, the protests that spread across the entire capital city of Colombo uh, resulted in hundreds of injuries and nine deaths, including two uh, police officers. And all of this contributed to immediately afterwards, the prime minister Mahinda Rajapaksa w- was forced to resign along with most of the ruling cabinet. However, the president, uh, the brother of the prime <laughs> minister, uh, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, Uh, has refused to resign. He then instead reacted the way that we see most uh, capitalist governments react to this sort of popular uprising, which is he ordered the army out into the city and ordered soldiers to shoot anyone seen destroying property. So leader of the political opposition parties, Sajith Premadasa, responded to uh, the government's, you know, calling out the army and essentially declaring a martial law in the city saying, quote, every single time the Rajapaksas take the back alley instead of the high road, violence, emergency laws, and fake followers will not stop the momentum of change. Expect serious repercussions if any peaceful protesters or media are harmed. And, like, you gotta love that tone in the response to calling out the army. Mm -hmm. Like, just being like, man, this is not a good idea. Like, look at how many people are mad at you. (laughs) Like, uh, so... There, since this all this all happened kind of early mid last week, uh, we're talking now on the seventeenth, and as of like when I checked this morning on the situation going on there, the there's still a curfew. There's still a lot of army around the streets of Colombo. Um, it seems like things have mostly calmed down since the uprising last week, uh, and one of the ways that the president has responded rather than resigning as it's been demanded has been, he appointed a new prime minister who I will certainly pronounce wrong named, uh, Ronald Wickremesinghe, I think, um, or it might just be Wickremesinghe who has actually been, he has apparently been prime minister of Sri Lanka five times before. <laughs> um, 
which is I, that's that's interesting. I mean, not that you know. Look, it's we we went back and forth between Clintons and Bushes in power in the U.S. So I'm certainly nowhere to oh. throw stones about political dynasties here. In I, the US. I, d- I definitely laugh because of that. Yeah, <laughs> but like. So upon taking over, um, their new prime minister um, (laughs) declared to the press that the country only has one day's worth of gasoline left. Mm -hmm. And in response to that, like the government is taking some measures, which makes sense, like printing more money in order to actually pay government worker salaries, which is like, okay, yeah, that's the you should do that. But they're also talking now about privatizing the state airline in order to raise foreign exchange funds which is that's not going to help long term that is just going to make things worse and so the opposition and the protesters have, say that their demands that the president resign have not changed cuz he's still there and still continuing to court investment from the IMF and the sorts of policies that that comes with and so they vowed to continue their protest struggle until he does actually in fact resign and so definitely we're going to have to continue watching this cuz this is a really big you know flashpoint of working class uprising right now yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, we did see like some uh, like a small part of the protest carrying some some communist insignia, but like uh, we don't know actually how uh, powerful that that um, communist bent is within the movement, uh, right? I mean, unless you have a he, better idea, Dan. I I have not. So I've only seen those. I, I know the pictures that you're talking about, which are incredibly cool, but like. I have not seen a lot to indicate that there's a there necessarily a large organized faction within the leadership. Um, this seems to be m- more along the lines of like organized along like trade union lines alongside the more like bourgeois democratic party lines. But uh, that's certainly yeah. not an expert on the political situation in Sri Lanka. I could be very wrong on that. I'm going off English language news from a bunch of different outs uh, like outlets so not sure but i don't think uh that there's like an organized communist leadership there but if things continue to get worse that yeah, might yeah. change so yeah absolutely we'll, see. well and uh let's move back to the united states where we are seeing more continued change in the uh way of union agitation where target workers have filed for a union in virginia now this kind of culminates in like the the ramping up of the labor movement from like the ALU and other sorts of really unprecedented wins. One thing that I did want to point out about this, which is super cool, is that these workers are actually organizing with the IWW, which is uh, really awesome. And apparently they have been building power pretty well. Yeah, like reading about this. So just to roll back here, I believe we have talked a little bit, a few, a couple of times on the show about the Target Workers Unite movement, because like, while obviously the current climate in the labor movement is, is being heavily shaped by the upsurge, as you said, at Amazon and, and Starbucks, like these workers have been organizing at Target for several years and, and like at this store and, and a few others. Like we talked in the past about some of the leaked documents that we saw from their heinous union busting training that they run for their managers. Um, and, and that really exemplifies that Target, like Walmart and, and you know some of the other biggest retailers in the U.S., have really made being anti-union like core to how they run their business. And so that's one of the things that makes this announcement so big is that like different pe- different groups have tried 
to organize a target before, and it's always really not had a whole lot of results. But these workers who are affiliated with the IWW have been slowly building up this organizing drive over the last few years. And like we've seen with so many of these, that was really supercharged by the pandemic, which really just made all those contradictions all the more clear and really like made workers understand that no matter how nice the company talks about you and how much they really care about you, when it comes down to it, it's how they materially react to different crises like the pandemic. And the way the target responded really exemplified that, you know, they don't really give a shit about their workers. Yeah. Um, Because the organizers had presented a petition to the store demanding seniority pay for long-term employees of like $2 an hour for five-year veterans and an additional $2 an hour for 10-year veterans. And Target has not even acknowledged that they received the petition. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. And that's, that's one of the things I think is really interesting about this drive is that like while they have now filed for an NLRB election, like these workers were building power on the job site even well before that. Like, um, like this is, and specifically just cause probably I don't think we've actually mentioned it yet. This is a store in Christiansburg, Virginia. Uh, they filed officially for an NLRB election to be represented by the IWW last Tuesday, May 10th. Uh, and this is after they had asked the company for voluntary recognition at the end of April, but after two weeks of radio silence, from target corporate they said okay fine we gave you two weeks and and, and filed and this has also comes after you know they filed ulp charges against target because previously in 2018 in the way that target responded illegally in its various union busting techniques when workers went on strike back four years ago there they ended up having to put together one of these like we've talked about many of these before the nlrb settlements when a company does a ulp where they Mm -hmm. have to agree okay we'll inform our workers of their right to form a union and we'll agree not to interfere with that and but as the target workers unite drive has been building recently they have of course unsurprisingly continued to do their union busting bullshit and so leading to these new ulp charges (laughs) and like That strike back in 2018 was a result of sexual harassment of workers, which is, I mean, I feel like, look, this is obviously, this is a problem in every workplace in America, but I feel like retail and like service sector jobs seem to be particularly bad about this sort of thing. So I think it's, you know, an obvious place for workers to form solidarity against like the boss's positions where they're just going to defend harassers, especially if they're in management. Yeah. Um, well, and target has been negligent on so many things. Like they tried to get their employees to not wear masks at the yeah. start of the pandemic. And then the employees had to organize a sick out, uh, to be able to wear masks. And, uh, they've also responded to the organizing attempt with the IWW by saying that you're going to have to pay $500 to the IWW. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to put you in an even worse financial situation if you're paying dues. And it's like, buddy, the IWW dues are like $6 a month. And, uh, if you send them an email and are like, I don't have it, they're like, you're good, Hoss. Like <laughs> they're really cool about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, 
it's it's we always encourage people to pay dues because it's what builds the organization and gives you the power to you know do things like uh-huh. strikes and other sorts of things like that but yeah they do actually have a policy that exempts people uh and even then they're in a fucking right to work state the the union can't force people to pay dues anyway right yeah so like in addition to because we part of that is what we see all the time which is the well you're gonna have to pay dues wouldn't don't you think you could do better with that money and the answer to that question is no because union dues are the best really the best single monetary investment you can make in yourself because the union is going to guarantee you more money than you would get otherwise on your own so yeah like in fact, no, you likely would not be able to do better with the money. But also, it's always a negligible amount of money for an incredible amount of benefits that you get. And then, so we hear that everywhere. But then, exactly what you were saying, since it's a right-to-work state, it's just a lie. Like, they are literally just lying to their, instead of just the, like, oh, we're dissembling by, like, implying things that are different than reality. No, this is just saying a thing that can't happen. Like, it's... It's awful, but I I guess to be expected. But like one of the organizers, uh, Adam Ryan with Target Workers Unite said that the workers who had, you know, they started organizing before the pandemic, but that the pandemic proved, quote, the company is just willing to leave us at risk of getting sick so long as business is operating. And there needs to be some sort of defense network in response to that, end quote. And like he also pointed out that a big part of the reason that they pushed for the uh, NLRB election is that while they've been having these like direct actions and they have won real wins for their workers by the direct stuff they've already done that if like by winning their election, they'll actually be able to lock those wins in permanently and be able to build on them in the future, which I, I, yeah, I like, I, I think they've got like the exact right outlook on this sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well, and, and we've been, also hammering home the need for like rank and file movements and i think that the idea that they are going with the iww is just showing that workers are seeing that that sort of rank and file power is what actually gets wins especially in these situations where it is historically difficult to get a true uh like movement going within these these really reactionary institutions like target walmart amazon and to know that the way that you actually build power is to actually meet every single one of the the people who are on the floor and include them and use real union democracy uh to to actually i don't know build power and win which i'm really hoping that that is what we see uh as they mentioned they themselves were incredibly uh bolstered by the recent wins at starbucks and amazon and rei and and just to know that the labor movement is on the ascent uh though i mean i there is still some question as to whether or not that's true because we always see like on occasion different ebbs and flows of the labor movement but I mean, as long as we keep up this rank-and-file movement, because previously, when we've seen other sorts of increases in unionization, we might not have seen the actual like change in tactics. We might have just seen that there were a couple big drives. Now, what we're seeing here is a genuine change in tactics to go back to what we have found to be very effective. And hopefully what that does is it inspires everyone to build things like rank-and-file committees within their unions to change them from business union-like 
uh, unions to things like rank and file unions and or just directly starting the union in a rank and file manner in the first place. Yeah, well, and and I mean, to that point, they've said that, like, obviously, like, they're, you know, they're building in this store in, in Christiansburg, but that their goal is that this builds another movement that will spread to other t- stores and that they've already got at least half a dozen other locations with nascent unions in the process of formation. And so they're really hoping that this becomes a movement. And in pro- in like, you know, maybe my favorite quote in the New Republic article that they put out about this, uh, that, that same organizer sa- said in response to, you know, what they're trying to build with this, he said, if you get one spark, that sets the prairie fire. Which huh. What's that from? <laughs> a little Fidel named Castro. <laughs> no, no, that's that's from Mao. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe but, Castro because like they really were a little spark that set a prairie fire. They were like 12 dudes when they started, right? 16, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. On, <laughs> on the grandma. But yeah, the, uh, the that was a very, very based and Mao-pilled uh, way to close out the article. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, I love mean, to see it. Hey, I am just cutting in here to give a little clarification on this. The um, This store actually pulled their election for a temporary amount of time because they filed with exactly 30% or so they thought, but the NLRB invalidated a couple cards. Uh, there will be more details next time, but we are still looking forward to this, and the organizers of this drive are very hopeful that when they file again, they will come back even stronger and Maybe even with more stores. Who knows? Back to the episode. Speaking of spreading the union drives across uh, the country, we've got yet another location seeing its first union, this time at Trader Joe's. So, like, A, this rules because more new unions. But also, this falls, I think, into yet another one of the many, many companies that we've talked about that loves to put forth, we're the, we're the good place to work. We're the progressive company. We're great. You, you don't need a union because it's so good to work here. And then uh, every single time that turns out not to be true. <laughs> it's almost like they're covering something up. Yeah. <laughs> we've even covered Trader Joe's back during like the, the more peak of the pandemic. Not to say that it's not still raging through our society, but it is less acknowledged. Uh, but there was the time when Trader Joe's like closed and closed a uh, a shop specifically because there was organizing going on uh but so we we have technically covered trader joe's before but it is good to see them actually announce their union yeah so this was i mean this was really great this just happened this weekend this was on uh saturday may 14th the workers uh, who are forming their union trader joe's united which is going to be an independent union more along the lines of like an alu style model where they're totally independent um than necessarily affiliating with one of the major unions and they announced made this announcement um by sending out a, a open letter to the trader joe's ceo dan bain and one of the things that they pointed out in the union well in that letter is that at the beginning of the pandemic Trader Joe's sent a letter to every Trader Joe's employees, like just saying, oh, there's 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 all these unions out there trying to, quote, drive discontent, end quote, at stores and like telling, you know, workers, oh, don't join these unions. These are bad. They're they're trying to break up the great relationship that we have between workers and and the store and all this sort of stuff. And 
the workers point out in the letter to their CEO that since that that was sent out, the company has slashed benefits, they've refused to raise wages, and they've been completely unresponsive to worker safety concerns. And so they say, quote, we organized ourselves with the same instinctive teamwork we use every day to break pallets, work the load, bag groceries, and care for our customers. We joined together to look out for each other and improve our workplace together. And they continued saying that, like specifically calling out the CEO saying, you pledged that, quote, if there are 30% of crew, the crew members in any store that tell us they want to have a union vote, we will, end quote. We can only hope that your intention behind this statement was to allow any store that files for an election the ability to hold that election without any attempts at union busting. We call on you to let us vote without interference or obstruction and hope that is a pledge you are willing to make, end quote. Yeah, I honestly doubt it, but uh, <laughs> it's good to to put that out there ahead to make sure to, you know, I mean, hey, we are coming here, like, letting you know and we're hoping that you are not shitty about it. Yeah. Uh, though, as all great progressive organizations, all great progressive companies out there, uh, they are actually uh, inc- incredibly reactionary, uh, and is one of the reasons why they have been cutting benefits despite you know still making mad profits through this whole pandemic. Yeah, so you have uh, situations where the company like used to provide health care to their part-time workers, and then after the Affordable Care Act was passed, they revoked it and used the law as an excuse not to provide it. And then you have employees like Woody Hoagland, who worked for Trader Joe's for 14 years, who describes that when he got cancer in 2019, the company actually actively fought to avoid having to cover his health care costs. Quote, as soon as they were able to remove me from their health insurance... They did, which is, that's just outright despicable behavior. And just like any of these companies that uh, market themselves as like such a good and progressive place to work, what meager uh, offerings they give to to predicate that um, that characterization of themselves on are always gradually or sometimes uh, suddenly taken away. Oh, yeah. I mean, the company used to provide 10% of uh, the workers' pay, or used to provide 10% of the workers' pay as a retirement, uh, uh, changing the policy uh, to make it so that you have to work 700 hours a year for 10 consecutive years, not even just like, oh, one, like, you know, 10 years total. Like, we want to make sure that, you know, you've been working here full time for, you know, 10 years or whatever. But like, say year nine, they're like, oh, you're coming up on that 10 years. They could immediately just push you to part time so that you'll never get that benefit. Well, and this also yeah. discriminates against people who have chronic or even occasional illness or injury. Oh, certainly. Yeah, and and workers just like because there was a a really good uh, more perfect union video that got put out with a lot of the workers involved in this campaign who were interviewed, and several of them described like that the work environment at Trader Joe's because of constant repetitive motion, like constantly you know having to bend down to unload people's carts because at Trader Joe's they do that thing where like the 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 worker unloads your cart for you onto because the, they don't have like the can. They don't have the conveyor belts mm-hmm. at the checkouts. And they also pointed out that because their stores are so small, there's actually a lot less just counter space for them. To, like when they're loading up displays of food with stuff, there's a lot more where they have to either put stuff on the ground or be on the little cart. So there's a lot of 
bending over, standing up, lifting stuff. So there's a lot of chance for repetitive motion type injury. And if that means you have to miss a decent amount of time or you have to cut back your hours, and at any point in that decade of working there that any of that injury causes you to dip below the 700 hours a year, oh, well, now you're not eligible and your clock restarts for retirement. So that is basically making it impossible for the vast majority of workers to really get that. Because, I mean, even even without the the hour requirement, like you have to work there for 10 years before any of this kicks in that, that like, that's a, that's a bullshit requirement anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, well, and to go back to my point on the company doing incredibly well financially, one of the things that uh, Trader Joe's reported was last year, they received $16.5 billion in revenue where, they were still cutting benefits and reducing protections for people under COVID over the period up till now. So uh, clearly they are not interested in, in improving worker conditions and instead are just like any other company trying to make money for the shareholders. Yeah. I mean, cause that's the thing. It's like it, people get into the, the sort of like the personalities of it and be like, Oh, this CEO is a good CEO. And this CEO is a mean CEO. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like the logic of capital presses on every one of these like enterprises slightly differently if they have monopolistic powers, like something like Starbucks, but like still there is that constant competitive pressure that requires a successful capitalist enterprise to cut labor costs, which means that even if your boss is a nice person, that's irrelevant to whether or not they are going to consider cutting your wages or not giving you a raise or cutting your benefits. It is the pressure of the market that's going to do that. And like, cause that's the thing is, is that ultimately that's what is the problem that we're coming at with like why this is a systemic issue and not an issue of like, we need to replace certain CEOs and why we're so in favor of unions because the only reason that these companies exist is because of the, the workers that make them run, which is basically what Chris Smalls was saying when he testified at Capitol Mm -hmm. Hill and is exactly what one of worker organizers at Trader Joe's United said in this video where Jamie Edwards, you know, said to finish it off, I want workers to remember that these companies don't function without them. And that's, that's it. That's it's exactly it. That's why every worker deserves a union. And so it's really encouraging to see this, especially at a company that again is consistently billed as, Oh, this place would never need a union. Cause it's so, you know, great to work. And so the fact that these workers have built their union there and, you know, have the potential to spread this to other Trader Joe's like, Big things are happening in U.S. labor right now, and it's very exciting to see. (laughs) Absolutely. And to continue that discussion, we're going to move to our weekly Starbucks follow-up, which if you missed our follow-up last week, we did a really big over-an-hour-long episode that we had to do as a shop floor uh, discussion because of how much we had to cover. And so, you know, become a patron, check that out. But uh, for this week, we're going to be going back to Eugene, Oregon, where two different stores had uh, done 
short short-term strikes to protest working conditions uh specifically saying uh they were targeted with retaliation against the union organizers across the pacific northwest as well as unfair exclusion of union stores from new benefits like better pay more sick time and better tips yeah i mean love to see this stuff because it's an acknowledgement that like the struggle to build the union doesn't end when you win your union vote. Mm-hmm. And it's really great to see that these workers, you know, they get that. Like, they that they have to keep fighting until they win on these points. And, like, showing this is, a you know, another demonstration of the unity of the workers at each of these stores that, like, they're not just going to take this union busting and this illegal retaliation and this basically harassment by Howard Schultz and Starbucks managers without any sort of response and that they're going to make a very public show of unity and strength to push back against it. And that rules. <laughs> like, and, and, it, and it's been working importantly, yeah. like this strategy of high publicity, uh, you know, completely standing your ground and, and, and pushing really hard has been working extremely well. We've seen, uh, I think at least three new stores unionized since the last time we recorded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, We've now, so that's the thing. There, there was a, I think, fifteen elections we covered in that one. A lot fewer so far this week, but you know, we recorded that episode on Thursday last week, so there was a couple extra days involved. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so we've got on last Friday, May thirteenth, there were three more stores that voted to join the Starbucks Workers United movement. Uh, two stores in California won their elections. First one in Lakewood, where where they won their vote twenty four to one. And then baristas at the Redondo and 7th store in Long Beach voted unanimously 13 to nothing for the union. And then for my two co-hosts, the big local victory when Michigan got their first unionized store when the Burton and Rosemont store at Grand Rapids voted 15 to 3 in favor of unionizing. Absolutely. Burton and Rosemont. I wonder if that's anywhere near my route. I should stop in. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah, Please do. I was thinking about uh, going up there myself because it's not always, uh, you know, around us that we get to to see labor uh, actions, especially ones that are so widely publicized as the Starbucks uh, Workers United movement. Yeah. And then on Monday, uh, I guess yesterday, the 16th, the power of the rank and file organizing win in the South continued where South Carolina got their first union store. Workers at I-85 and Pelham uh, voted eight to one in favor of a union. And uh, that has, oh, I should have, made a joke before this but that was the 70th (laughs) store to win a union election i remember over the weekend we had a uh, a meme that was doing very well uh (laughs) where it was starbucks has 69 stores and we had like tons of comments just nice nice (laughs) nice nice (laughs) yeah so i mean the drive continues on we've got there's what like another i think 180 more and that's just the filed elections so we're well over a thousand workers have voted for this i think they're at about 1500 ish or so workers now at unionized stores Uh, so like yeah starbucks keeps rolling out these new and more repressive evil ways to fuck with the union drive starbucks workers united just keeps winning so you know i mean and they're gonna keep winning as far as we can tell yeah and and the the victories in a place like 
this store in Greenville, South Carolina, even though there were only nine workers involved in the vote, like look at how many big unions have tried over the last few decades. You can argue about how hard they tried, but like we're going to organize say a Nissan plant or say, or like a, a, any of a, a number of industries in the South and it, it doesn't work out for a bunch of reasons. And then they're like, well, it's the South. Well, they got right to work laws. It's the culture and the racism. It's just, you can't organize there. It just can't be done. And then, you know, this little like worker led movement comes in is like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps if you run, if you let the workers run their own campaigns, <laughs> then they will actually be able to organize the South. Cause this is, I think the third, fourth, maybe fifth store that has, has won their union vote south of the Mason-Dixon line. So mm-hmm. that's a lot more wins than I, I've seen, you know, in organizing in the south and a lot of other sectors. So I think there's well, a lot of these tactics that some of the other folks could learn to could really learn from. Yeah, well, and even when, uh, you know, even when workers in the south lose, it's often because the company had to fight, like, incredibly hard. Think of all the stops that Amazon pulled out to stop the organization right. in Bessemer, and then even though that didn't end up being a victory, it ended up uh, leading to victories in uh, Staten Island. So, you know, it's always worth doing. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Speaking of things that are always worth doing, we're going to move to the <laughs> meme review. That's right. Uh, where the first one is a continuation of our putting a uh, coffee-related meme right after the Starbucks news, which is just this tweet, which I loved, uh, which which was the... I'll just read it. Uh, Rich people love complaining about, quote-unquote, unskilled workers. Bro, you're the one who has to pay someone to make you a cup of coffee. And just... <laughs> Yeah, I there's another one of these that I think we've done before that I really like where it's like when you go to the barbecue f- with the guy who who talks about unskilled workers and then it's just like the pile of like charcoal briquettes instead of burgers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then this I, I guess I, I have just uh gathered a couple tweets for this first one. Uh but the I don't know if people are familiar with the uh, at sick of wolves account, the not a wolf, which is just a uh, <laughs> the profile picture is a wolf in a suit. And uh, it's in all caps. I love this modern world. All of the mail is trash and all of the phone calls are from no one. But on the bright side, you get to assemble your own furniture, regardless of your carpenter level of carpentry skill. <laughs> <laughs> just- I feel that I just put together a desk slash entertainment system recently and. And uh, it took like two and a half hours, and I hated it. <laughs> Looks good, though. Yeah. How many Allen keys did it come with? <laughs> it, it came with uh, one Allen key and one tiny screwdriver, and they both went into the bin of Allen keys yep. and screwdrivers. <laughs> I have like a gallon plastic bag that I swear has like 100 Allen keys in it at this point. It's like, oh, this is useful for exactly this fastener and like very few others. Better not throw it away in case I ever need to move. <laughs> they should just make an Allen key that fucking expands in all six directions. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and I pulled another one. This one, or another meme in here. This one is a uh, a Joe Biden meme, which is I actually don't know exactly what this format is, but it's like you know a person who's making a request on the left, and then the person telling them that they're not going to do anything on the right. But there's it's just this baby wrapped there and says, "My mommy can't find formula for me, and when she does, she can't afford it." And then there's just Joe Biden licking an ice cream cone that says, "Sorry, Jack, forty billion to Ukraine." we don't got any money for COVID vaccines not actually going to do anything about this formula crisis but we can send weapons to nazis (laughs) i mean shit we pay like teachers fucking 12 dollars an hour in some states in this country (laughs) like we don't take care of anybody but it's just like oh yeah if you need a contract with raytheon (laughs) oh boy bipartisan support yeah yeah like i there was a I saw a thing where like he Biden went to do some press conference, I think at like the factory that makes javelin missiles. Just like this is so good, we're fighting for freedom. I'm like, you know, it'd be a lot cooler if that factory made, I don't know, literally anything else. Like, <laughs> yeah. Formula, COVID vaccines, stuff that just doesn't blow people up. <laughs> I would even accept foods that are entirely made out of corn, which are their own whole set of problems, but would be a lot better than missiles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so this next one is, uh, is very topically related to the recent, very mostly stupid discourse about whether it's okay to protest in front of an unelected official's house. Uh, where it's, you got Sonic giving the big thumbs up and then it's just, yeah, I'm into NFTs. And then you've got like a sort of the anagram breakdown of the letters, not allowing federal judges to have any peace of mind over what they've done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hell yeah. And, uh, I got to tell you this protesting outside of their houses shit is scaring them. It's working, but it's also creating some backlash like governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, uh, just signed a bill that makes it illegal to protest outside of people's houses to which I say, I can't tell you to protest outside his house because that would be illegal. <laughs> but listen to the tone of my voice as I say, <laughs> well, cause that's the thing. It's like, did, did they, did they, you know, quickly make a bipartisan move to ban protests like where people are calling for, you know, folks to vote? No, because like that doesn't really do anything. But the second they were made to feel even the slightest discomfort when Susan Collins had to see mean chalk drawings on the sidewalk outside her house suddenly Mm -hmm. the senate leaps into action and pat and gives like more money to cops and you know like fascists like like ron DeSantis start making protests illegal so uh clearly that's the sort of protest that is actually having an impact and that's the sort of protest that is probably worth doing (laughs) yeah and then i wanted to make a request of of you two for this last one because this last (laughs) one is a statler and waldorf from the muppets the two heckler guys who sit up in the balcony (laughs) and i really wanted to see if you two would read this one uh sure if i don't know statler and waldorf voice okay thanks for putting me on the spot Uh, (laughs) (laughs) can you believe it 40 percent of bitcoin investors are now underwater (laughs) well look on the bright side there's a bright side what's that at least now they have some liquid assets (laughs) (laughs) and then you have to shake the muppets around really aggressively (laughs) 
Oh, oh man, the crypto crash last week was just full of so many wonderful memes. <laughs> Incredible. Bitcoin dropped 25% in five days. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's volatility like nobody's ever seen before. It, it, there were so many people being like, oh, people are actually losing money. How can you be laughing about it? I'm like, it, they're the most annoying people on the face <laughs> of the earth who were told over and over and over and over again that crypto is a Ponzi scheme and then made fun of the people telling them it was a Ponzi scheme. So no, I don't really have a lot of sympathy. <laughs> yep. I've been hacked. All my apes gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't buy crypto, folks. It's a scam. Yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> well, uh, I want to thank you too for, for uh, humor. For uh, I want to thank you too for humoring me on that one. <laughs> and uh, that's going to do it for us today, folks. Uh, if you love the show, share it with some friends. Share your favorite episodes. Uh, also, you can become a patron and support us with $5 a month and get access to our overtime episodes. I've actually just sorted them a little bit better. If you are having trouble get access- accessing some of the older ones, jump in the Discord where in the dues payers only channel, the description there has links directly to the all of the overtime episodes and the shop floor discussions where you can go back and check those out and learn a little bit. We're going to be continuing our series on rank-and-file unionism next week and then also write a review or, you know, I guess any thing i guess you just keep it on your desk next to you uh get a big yard sign instead of an election sign no right no actually start a yard sale and then sell them (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry i'm just running out of ideas for this one you're gonna put, put your ideas for how to support the uh the show in the discord but anyway That's follow right. john on twitter at facebook villain follow the pod at work stoppage pod i'm at solidarity b listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever all my apes gone <laughs> solidarity everybody <laughs>